So we'll be continuing forward in the book of Acts today in chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 13, especially starting at verse 4. The title of the message is, They spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll read from verse 1 through to verse 21 of chapter 2. And please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues, as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there there were dwelling in Jerusalem... Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. And this ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. So last week, you recall, we looked at the first four verses and we saw what it was like when the Spirit came. We saw the power of the Spirit and the presence of the Spirit there with the early disciples. And we also briefly initially looked at the idea of the proclamation of the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We looked at that briefly last week. The very first fruit of the presence of the filling of the Holy Spirit of God was for the believers to speak according to how the Spirit gave them utterance. They spoke the Word of God. We need to note this first. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit leads to opening of the mouth and the speaking of God's word. This is often missed, glossed over, confused by other claims about this text. 
Next, note that they were made able suddenly, miraculously to speak in other languages. That is, languages that they had never learned. They were suddenly fluent in foreign languages. This is a great miracle that works to reverse the curse of Babel, making the gospel of the kingdom rapidly accessible to all the world, accelerating the work of the kingdom of God that they were called to do. And this miraculous event was foretold. We'll look at this in future sermons. And it serves as a great encouragement to the faithful and a great warning of judgment to the enemies of the gospel who would not heed the message. We'll look at Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Listen carefully to what God did back in that day to stop the spread of humanism. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. It's worth noting that in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, this word here that we see language is the same word for tongues that we see in Acts chapter 2. We're talking about languages. Today's sermon, we're going to look through it verse by verse as usual. We'll see they begin to speak with other tongues. We'll We'll look at this a little more closely, as the Spirit gave them utterance. We'll see that there were Jews from every nation under heaven present. And we'll look at this confused multitude. They heard them speak in their own language. And this then becomes a marveling multinational multitude testifying to what they're seeing. And then there's two different responses that we see at the end of this. And then, as usual, some questions to bring this home to us today in our thinking and our application in today's world as the people of God who are still called to go forth and present the clear message of the gospel here and everywhere. So, verse 4, they began to speak with other tongues. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So first, let's look at this idea that they were all filled and began to speak. So they all were filled and they all began to speak in these other tongues. Who is all? Who is present? We looked at this in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about... 120. We know also that Matthias has joined them at this point. So what about this idea of tongues? Well, it 
is the Greek word for the tongue, but it's also the Greek word for languages, the language or dialect used by a particular people distinct from that of other nations. So that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about languages. And so the meaning of this Greek word used in this text is human languages. And the Lord chose to make the visible fire on each head into the shape of a single tongue that was divided. One tongue divided, cloven. Even the fiery symbol on each head pointed to the ability to speak more than one language. Think about it. The cloven tongue points to the ability to speak in multiple tongues. Yet, it was only one tongue on each head pointing to the one message from God that was to be distributed into every single language in the earth. Matthew Henry says these tongues were cloven to signify that God would hereby divide unto all nations the knowledge of his grace, as he is said to have divided to them by his providence the light of the heavenly bodies. The tongues were divided, and yet they still continued all of one accord. For there may be a sincere unity of affections, where yet there is a diversity of expression. The dividing of tongues at Babel was the casting off of the heathen. For when they had lost the language in which alone God was spoken of and preached, they utterly lost the knowledge of God and religion and fell into idolatry. But now, after about 2,000 years, God, by another dividing of tongues, restores the knowledge of himself to the nations. And this single message from heaven began then to flame across the entire world in every language. That's what's happening. This idea of other tongues. The 120 were each one speaking in a language other than their original language. Other tongues means a different language, one in which they were not fluent until that miraculous moment. So suddenly, miraculously, as the first evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit, the church in Jerusalem began to speak in multiple other languages. Now we need to just stop and think about that. This shows us how important communication is as human beings. We take it for granted, often because we do it too much. Speaking as one who talks too much. But we are made in God's image. And one of the key distinctions as human beings that separates out us out from the other visible creatures is our ability to think and hold ideas in our mind and to communicate them using our tongue, our vocal cords, and our lungs to communicate ideas with specific sounds that we make to hold these ideas. This is wonderful that we are made this way. And God highlights this as the first thing of the evidence of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is to bring the message through our ability to communicate to all the people of the world. But how did they decide what to say? Well, verse 4 tells us, as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's what it says. The disciples are each speaking in another language, and the Holy Spirit gave them the words they were speaking in the other tongue. This word utterance also shows us that they were speaking. It means to speak out, to speak forth, to pronounce. They were using their lips and their tongue and their vocal cord to speak words that were coming out. Sounds, audible words. So this is another evidence that these disciples were speaking aloud in a new language. The words that exited their mouths were words enunciated with their tongues 
in order to create audible words from their newly, miraculously acquired language that was planted in their head by God at that moment. One thing we need to understand is that we do live in a world of confusion in regard to the idea of the gift of tongues. And one of the things that we need to establish first in order to understand this gift is what happened here in Acts chapter 2. And the main premise from which I'm working is that the exegesis of the text requires us to believe that God gave them miraculous languages and they became fluent enough in that language at that moment to share the message of the kingdom of God with the people who were present to whom the message would not have gone without this miracle at that time. And so as we go forward and we look at the gift of tongues more over time in the book of Acts, and as I also divert a little bit and go into 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, we will understand that what happened in Acts chapter 2 is what has happened throughout the entire course of the New Testament age. Okay? And so we see this is one gift where they were fluent, and that's what we see throughout the book of Acts and also in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and I'll make that case over time. Okay? Matthew Henry says about this miracle, a very proper, needful, and serviceable miracle. The language the disciples spoke was Syriac, a dialect of the Hebrew, so that it was necessary that they should be endued with the gift for the understanding both of the original Hebrew of the Old Testament in which it was written and of the original Greek of the New Testament in which it was to be written. But this was not all. They were commissioned to preach the gospel to every creature, to disciple all nations. But here is an insuperable difficulty at the threshold. How shall they master the several languages so as to speak intelligibly to all nations? It will be the work of a man's life to learn their languages. And therefore, to prove that Christ could give authority to preach to the nations, he gives ability to preach to them in their own language. And it should seem that this was the accomplishment of that promise which Christ made to his disciples in John 14. Greater works than these shall you do. For this may well be reckoned, all things considered, a greater work than the miraculous cures Christ wrought. Christ himself did not speak with other tongues, nor did he enable his disciples to do so while he was with them. But it was the first effect of the pouring out of the Spirit upon them. Is it probable that if the conversion of infidels to Christianity were now sincerely and vigorously attempted by men of honest minds, God would extraordinarily countenance such an attempt with all fitting assistance as he did the first publication of the gospel. And as I go on, I shall share stories of modern examples of individuals miraculously given the ability to speak a language when they're in a culture and they need to and God gives it to them. There are, there are modern stories to this effect. Going on. Jews from every nation under heaven, verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So the entire known world is represented at this event. That's what we're being told. Whether the Jews had been dispersed. So where had they been dispersed to? The entire known world. In the two or three greater or other lesser dispersions. So the Jews had been dispersed throughout the years and they, the devout ones would come back for the feasts. So this leads to this confused multitude who heard them speak in his own language. Verse 6 says, And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. 
What is this word, this sound? What are they hearing? What's going on? Bach says the sound, probably a reference to the tongues in light of the next few verses, draws a crowd. Perhaps they also heard the sound of the, that sounded like a mighty rushing wind that we're told about in the first verses of Acts chapter 2. But in either case, they get there because of the sound that they're hearing. And they're confused. So they're disturbed in their minds. They're, they're stirred up. They don't know what's going on. They're confounded. They're bewildered by what they're seeing and hearing. It's an astonishing event. They don't have the mind keys that they need to unlock the mystery that they're observing. Nothing like this has ever come before them before, and they don't know how to sort it out. Because they heard them speak in their own language. And it's worth noting that it's referencing both the speaking and the hearing. So it's like you and me right now. You would say that you hear me speaking in your own language. So that's why they're confused. The disciples are delivering a message to these visiting Jews in their own native tongues. Many, if not most of these, have probably already been there before and they'd never seen anything like this before. They came and often experienced the difficulties of the language barrier. Maybe they knew enough Hebrew or enough Greek or enough Syriac or whatever they needed to get along there in that community, but they didn't have their mother tongue. They weren't speaking in their native language with all the nuances and points of understanding that are present. So there's no miracle here for the listeners. It is no miracle to recognize your own language when you hear it. And again, this is important because those in error in today's world who will try to maintain that some other gift of tongues was active and is active in the church, one of the main places that they'll go is to argue against the simple miracle that's happening. And they'll try to describe that something else is happening. Oh, well, maybe the, the gift was in the hearer, right? Maybe the hearer can, was given some gift. Or maybe the apostles, when they spoke, who knows what came out, but God changed it as it went through the air to their ears. So there's a number of different ideas that are out there that you'll bump into. And so I want to just again point to the text because the text says they heard them speak in their own language. So this leads to this marveling multinational multitude testifying aloud. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So we see here this transition. We've seen it before in other texts where the confusion begins to kind of transition into amazement and marveling. So they're astonished, they're wondering, and then they begin to wonder at, to marvel at, to even come to a point of admiring what they're seeing, like what is going on as it dawns on them what is happening. So confusion is turning into astonishment and wonder and admiration as they're figuring out, as they're realizing what is happening. And they say, how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? So they really do peer into the heart of the mystery with this question. God uses this marvelous miracle to increase the curiosity of these devout Jews. You see, not only does the miracle serve to give them 
the message of the kingdom in their mother tongue, but it also makes them a lot more curious to hear the message. And part of what they want to know is, how is this happening? So their desire to listen to the disciples really increases. And so it's their debating over this that we'll see what is the cause of this that opens the door for Peter to stand and deliver his famous sermon starting in verse 14. That's what he starts with. There's an explanation to them of what's happening and what's not happening. You know, he tells them, it's not, we're not drunk, it's too early in the morning for that. Which I think, you know, I'll have to look at the commentaries, but it sounds like Peter starts off with a little joke. Again, it is clearly stated that these Jews are hearing their native language. In fact, in their familiar dialects, that Greek word there where it says each in our own language is, a, is another word, it's another Greek word that has to do with their dialect. And so they're noticing that all the other foreign Jews present are also hearing the message in their own native language. So they see that, they recognize these are Galileans. And, you know, the Galileans are not known. They're kind of like the hicks of the New Testament world, right? Kind of like us. And the Galileans are speaking in all of these other languages. And they recognize they're Galileans. And yet it's coming to them in their specific dialect that they're most familiar with. Each and every one of them. So God is giving the gospel to these devout Jews who are present in their own special language. the special branch of their language that they know the best. Bach says, the message comes surprisingly in their own dialects with each nation group hearing its particular language or idiom. Added in this verse is this phrase in which, in which we were born to underscore that the native language is meant. God is using for each group the most familiar, familiar linguistic means possible to make sure the message reaches to the audience in a form they can appreciate. Thus, the miracle underscores the divine initiative in making possible the mission God has commissioned. In a real sense, God is bringing the message of the gospel home to those who hear it. So they're able to take back with them what they actually heard in their own language from the apostles, in their own dialect. They didn't have to do the translation themselves in their own mind where they might be off a little bit. They got it exactly how God wanted them to get it in their own language. It's so beautiful. So then the nations are listed for us in verses 9 through 11. Look at this. This list appears, Bach says, to highlight the key communities where Jews of the diaspora congregated and it suggests the gospel's universal scope. And so Bach breaks these nations listed into one, two, three, four... Five, six different groupings and we'll look at what he has to say about each of these groupings the first line that's the Parthians the Medes the Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia those uh, claims need to be grouped together and it makes sense the first line lists the communities located to the east in Mesopotamia and beyond Parthia is the farthest east and then Media an area west of the Caspian and south of the Zagros Mountains Elam is the ancient plain of Khuzestan and is bordered by the Karka River, which joins the Tigris north of the Persian Gulf. Mesopotamia covers the Tigris and Euphrates Valley and is where the Parthian and Roman Roman empires met at that time. So first description starts there to the west. And then Judea and Cappadocia. And the second part of the list covers larger Judea, which was a bigger region than what we see in our maps when we look at the New Testament. And Cappadocia to the north. So you can see it's moving from west to east now in the description. 
and then Pontus in Asia. The third line looks even farther north to Pontus on the edge of modern Asia Minor, that's Turkey, and beyond to Asia, which here is probably between Asia, is probably Western Asia Minor. The middle portion of Acts will involve this area. So you can see that they're coming across uh, through into the um, northeastern region there of the, what borders the Mediterranean Sea, today what we would call the region of Turkey and Syria. Now moving on, Phrygia and Pamphylia. The fourth line moves west from Cappadocia to the central and southern edge of Asia Minor to Phrygia and Pamphylia. The third and fourth lines cover what is today modern Turkey. So you can see how the description is moving westward. Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. So the fifth line goes farther west and south across the Great Sea to Egypt. Next comes Libya as far west as Cyrene. So you can see the description as it moved from uh, the east to the west, first went to the north part of the Great Mediterranean Sea, and then the next description comes down across the southern part of the Mediterranean Sea. And then Rome, Cretans, and Arabs. The last line comes back north to Rome, mentioning that both Jews and Gentile proselytes have come to Jerusalem from there and referring to Crete and the Arabians, probably meaning Nabatea, making almost a full circle as the list is completed. That Rome is in the last grouping is important, for it is where Acts will end. And so there's a lot that could be debated about why these were given in certain orders, uh, but one thing that stands out amongst the commentaries that I looked at is that they move from that direction, from east to west in general. The idea of the Arabs being there listed last kind of throws that a little bit into uncertainty. But we do also see that it matches overall with the journey of the gospel that we're given in the books of Act, book of Acts. Not completely, not perfectly. Some of these regions are not mentioned in Acts, but most of them are. So what is going on? Again, we hear the same phrase. Repetition is important. We hear them speaking in our own tongues. The Lord uses, via Luke, uses repetition to emphasize to the reader, who we know is Theophilus, originally, right? So Luke wanted Theophilus to know this and all the readers exactly what happened that today, that, that day when it happened, and what was the great outcome. It was, they didn't want to have any confusion about what actually happened. It's said, it said to us over and over again in this text. I want you to see again how this verse brings it all together, what's actually happening. We hear them speak. The Jewish visitors hear the disciples speaking. Just like right now, you see my lips moving. You hear the words I'm speaking, and you would testify that what you're hearing came out of my mouth. This is what's being testified to here. The words that they're hearing are words that are coming out of the mouths of the disciples, enunciated by the disciples' tongues, formed through their vocal cords, coming out from the disciples' lungs, coming forth from the disciples' minds, according to the Holy Spirit's leading. Now, you may think that this is kind of overly tedious, as I'm emphasizing this over and over again. But again, it's really important because you're going to bump into other ideas out there in the world today. And step one in this argument is firmly establishing what happened in Acts chapter 2 and what did not happen in Acts chapter 2. Because if we establish what the Word of God teaches us in Acts chapter 2, then the onus, the burden of proof is on those who would claim that this gift is something different in other parts of the Scripture. And it makes it very difficult for those who have a different persuasion to win the argument if they lose the argument in Acts chapter 2. Okay, which I believe they do. And these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
We love them. We work together in the kingdom with them. Had some wonderful people trying to convince me of their view this last week in my office. And they loved on me and we loved on each other. So this is, uh, this is a, a disagreement within the kingdom. Okay? But it is an important point of clarification because I do believe it leads to a lot of confusion and a lot of uncertainty in the minds of Christians. And I believe it slows us down in the work that we can do together as Christians in the kingdom. Okay. So what did they hear? Listen to this summary of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom of the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom. The wonderful works of God. That's what they heard. The wonderful works of God. Magnificent, excellent, splendid, wonderful works of God. It's one message in many languages. What's the one message? The wonderful works of God. Becoming in many languages. This is heaven's message. Bringing God's kingdom to earth. Bringing God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we all know what these wonderful works are. We've talked of them before. And the apostles were taught by Jesus himself in the last bit of Luke 24. He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And so there in Jerusalem, on that great day of Pentecost, probably in A.D. 30, the disciples are brought to that point, are of one accord. They know the Word of God. They know who Jesus Christ is. They know what God has done. And they probably walk through the Old Covenant writings with these people, describing to them to the, the Messiah, just like Jesus did on the Emmaus Road, just like we're trying to learn how to do in our Christian Instruction Hour. And they were proclaiming the wonderful works of God in Jesus Christ. In His perfect life, His incarnation, His walking in perfection, fulfilling all the law of God, voluntarily going to the cross for His people, suffering under the full weight of the wrath of God for His people, dying on the cross, being placed in the tomb, being brought alive out of the tomb, and taught to the kingdom of God to them for those 40 days, and then raised up before their sight to the Father's right hand, and they've been waiting for 10 days, and boom, now it's time to tell everybody what God has done. Those are the wonderful works of God. And we get to tell the wonderful works of God. And we get to tell what He's done in our lives as a result of believing in the wonderful works of God. And we get to be a part of this same flame that's burning. Amen. Praise be to God. So what is the response here? The wonderful works of God go out. Well, as usual, there are those who don't listen. (laughs) Right? There are two different responses. the, The text tells us in verses 12 and 13, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. So first, let's look at all are amazed and perplexed. So, Everyone's amazed and perplexed, and then some go on to mock it. Okay, so this amazement, this perplexion that they're dealing with, that's something they all dealt with. But then some just kind of stayed in a good spot asking questions. Others went on to mocking. So 
This word amazed here is actually the same one that was used in verse 7. So what we see here is just this persistent amazement that these people have as they're listening, as they're watching, as they're hearing, and they're continuing in their uncertainty of like, what's happening here? It's persistent. It's a blend, and they're wondering. And so they're, they get to the point to where they need to understand. They said, whatever could this mean? <laughs> That's a great question. Whatever could this mean? Like, that's an honest question that God by His Spirit is bringing them to really want to know what is going on. You see, these are people who've been brought to a spot where they're comfortable with moving into a new reality. They're okay with discovering a whole new world of existence. And see, when we take the kingdom of the the gospel of the kingdom of someone, we're we're, we're inviting them into a whole new world. It's It's a whole new world into reality to exit and leave behind their fantasy and come into solid reality. And so that's what's happening to these people. Whatever could this mean? Henry says, they wonder at it and look upon it as an astonishing thing. They were all amazed. They were in an ecstasy. So the word is, and they were in doubt what the meaning of it was and whether it was to introduce the kingdom of the Messiah, which they were big with the expectation of. They asked themselves and one another, what is the tendency of this? That's another way to put the meaning of this question. What is the tendency of this? Surely it is to dignify and so to distinguish these men as messengers from heaven. And therefore, like Moses at the bush, they will turn aside and see this great sight. So when we have the opportunity to share the gospel of the kingdom with people and speak of the wonderful works of God in the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the reign and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ in His ministry. We have an opportunity to share this with people. When He's at work, when He's anointing that conversation, they're going to say, what does this mean? They're going to gain curiosity over what we are sharing with them, what they're seeing, what they're hearing from us. Those are the people you want to spend your time with. An old friend of mine said, Matt, throw out the seeds and spend time with the hungry birds. Want to know where to spend your time? Spend time with people who are curious about the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's where you, that's where you focus your discipleship, discipleship efforts. But others mock the disciples. So there's another group. They, would, they did everything else. They were amazed. They were perplexed. They saw the same thing. But they mocked the disciples. So this is a very unreasonable conclusion, yet in some regards it may be possible since many of the local Jews would not have understood the disciples. So it might not just be that these were hard-hearted people. It seems like that's the case because they do mock, which is not nice. (laughs) But it could just be that they really thought the disciples were just babbling because they did not understand the language that was being spoken. But it is one of the ways that Luke begins to show us the varied response to the gospel. Bach says, others in the crowd make an effort to explain, mocking the claims, even though this explanation will turn out to be completely wrong. Luke often has opposing views and reactions to such proclamation. The Acts 2 narrative notes that these remarks are given in a mocking tone. This is the only use of this term in the New Testament, nor is it present in the Septuagint. The non-prefixed form of this verb appears only in Acts 17.32 for mocking at Paul's preaching of the resurrection in Athens. This group is clear that it does not believe the divine claims 
So these scoffers render their judgment that the disciples are filled with sweet, only partially fermented wine in their skeptical view, only the disciples, less than sober condition, can explain the unusual behavior. So this is where we are. What a wondrous event has taken place on this Pentecost, this first Pentecost day of the age of the regeneration. So let's think about this a little bit, about how this applies to ourselves and to our lives, to our families, to our church, to our callings. First of all, about communication. Have you ever pondered, meditated upon the idea that one of the primary demonstrations of the image of God in us is our ability to communicate? And when we think of communication, we're talking about our mind, our ear, our tongue, our lung. The parrot who says, good morning, probably doesn't know what he's saying. He or she is saying, right? So we do know that there are creatures that have the ability to enunciate words that we would understand. But they're, they're not like we are. Ability to hold vast numbers of ideas in our mind. And to understand that those ideas are abstract. And that via language we are able to give concrete expression to abstract ideas. So the idea is house. But then you've got house. You've got casa, probably in Portuguese you've got a different word. And so we've got ideas that we're able to hold in our mind. Animals can't do this. Angels can do it, right? We can do this. God gave us the ability to do this. And then to know that we can transmit those ideas using words. And the words themselves are meaningless apart from us connecting them to these ideas that we use the words to share these ideas. So this is one of the ways that sorts humans from all other visible creatures on, on earth. But you know, it is shared with angels and with God. And so that's going to be great. Someday we get to talk with angels. We see this happening in the Bible. As you, I, you know, they're here with us. I prayed today that we'd have some special angelic visitors today that don't usually visit. I don't know why I prayed that. Uh, but I would love to have them just show up and start speaking to us and to be able to talk with them. So ponder this as you think through Acts 2, the importance of communication. And there's so much we could say about that, about our tongue, the use of our words, the importance of clarity of speech and care with what we say. It emphasizes that we have received that communicable attribute from God, the ability to communicate. Next, do you see how humanity was propelled apart as a result of the confusion at the, at the Tower of Babel? And this was accomplished by God. God said, let us. God came down. God gave the gift of tongues. Do you see that? That was a unique way of giving tongues. He gave multiple different peoples the same gift of tongues suddenly, and it appears as though also took away the knowledge of the original language because otherwise they would have been able to continue to communicate with each other. And so God did this to stop the spread of humanism. It's very clear what they were doing. Man is the measure of all things. And they were going to build a tower to heaven. And God notices there's nothing these people can't accomplish if they're able to communicate. So he sends them apart. Pentecost 
reverses that. God is telling us that the message of the kingdom, the message of the gospel of the kingdom is more powerful than the message of humanism. Think about this. God did not ever bring the tongues back together again until the gospel came. What does this teach us? The gospel is a greater message than the message of humanism. God's not taking a risk by bringing us back into the ability to speak to one another. The gospel of the kingdom is a greater message than the message of humanism. This should bring great encouragement to us. Also, as I've already made the point, who receives the miraculous gift? In this story, who received the miraculous gift? A person called a disciple or an apostle. One of the 120. So it, it looks to me that probably Mary, the mother of Jesus, was speaking in other languages about her son. Now we don't, I don't necessarily think we can say that for sure, but it does say all spoke in tongues. And Jesus' brothers. And so we see men and women probably were given this gift. And they were all just sharing the gospel of the kingdom with everyone around them. And they were able to talk to them in their own language. Who had the gift? The disciples. Did the hearers have a miraculous gift? No. Did something miraculous occur in the air after the sound came out of their mouth? No. It was just like when you have talked to other people in another language. Some of you are multilingual and you talk to other people in other languages and you know what I'm talking about. That's what was happening. So what did they speak? What motivated their speech? Well, the same thing that motivated their speech before they had the miraculous gift. As the Spirit gave them utterance, and they spoke of the wonderful works of God. So this kind of gets to the idea of the importance of linguistic training and learning in our world today. And just to encourage all the young people, it is a great calling to learn multiple languages so that you can be a part of accelerating the gospel of the kingdom throughout the whole world. And why would you learn to do that? So that you could... Show people how great and smart you are? No. Because the Spirit will give you utterance to speak the wonderful works of God. So that's why the language exists. Not for ourselves, not for our own glory, for the proclamation of the message of the gospel. So we see very clearly what the purpose of this first great miracle was. And it was to accelerate the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God to the entire ends of the earth. And that is the same reason we learn other languages today, is to be able to communicate the gospel throughout the, the entire world. Broadening it with one couple final questions, are you clearly communicating the message of the gospel of the kingdom to other people? So first you have to understand the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God. You have to have it in your mind. You could go to Luke chapter 24 that I quoted today and really look closely at that to understand what you need to say to people when you present to them the gospel of the kingdom of God. In fact, I'm going to go back and read it again. 
These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So you have to be able to start in the Old Testament. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. You need to know the Scriptures about Jesus in the Old Testament. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. You need to be able to preach an accurate message about Christ suffering on the cross and the necessity of it. You need to be able to give an accurate message of the necessity for Christ to rise from the dead that he did and why it was necessary on the third day. And you need to be a part of preaching repentance and remission of sins throughout the whole world. Knowing that Christ now reigns at the Father's right hand. So are you communicating clearly the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God to others as the Lord gives you ability and opportunity to do so? And finally, do we see the importance of doing that not only here locally through our own ministries to the people that we bump into and the lives that we lead and the connections that God gives to us in our own personal lives, in our family, in our friendship, in our community endeavors in our work and our vocation, but also that we uh, want to, as a church, make an effort to be a part of the global delivery of this message, the global expression of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to all the world, like they were. So I hope that this will serve as a good foundation for us. Uh, as we continue to think through this particular gift as we move forward in looking at the book of Acts. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you speak to us by your word, that you communicate to us from heaven that you have made us able to understand what you are saying to us in your word, and that you've blessed us to be those who also communicate your word to others. And we ask, Father, that you would bless us with the ability to do this better and better all the days of our lives, with greater and greater clarity and greater and greater accuracy from your word. And that you would bless the opportunities, that we would have many opportunities to share the message of the gospel of the kingdom. Bless Foothills in our efforts to be connected with the work of the gospel here and throughout the world. Bless us, Father, to think your thoughts in regards to the gift of tongues and to your kingdom and your plan to spread your kingdom throughout this entire world. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name.